and welcome to Right Hearted with me, Stuart Wakefield. I am chuffed to have with me author, editor, uh, speaker, and writing coach, Roz Morris. Roz, welcome. Hello, Stuart. Thank hey, you for inviting me. I'm so me. glad you could be here. <laughs> It's been too long. I, the reason I use the word chuffed, and for those who are um, not in the UK, the word chuffed means, well, very happy, is that um, I sent a text message to my fiance on the 12th of June at 2015. Um, I scored an interview today with Ros Morris, meeting her at St. Paul's at 1.20pm. I am well chuffed. And the reason was I was doing an assignment for my MA, and Roz very kindly and kind of at the very last minute um, agreed to meet me for an interview for an assignment and I got a distinction in my MA so Roz thank you you're welcome and um, (laughs) the word chuffed I use the word chuffed all the time and Americans often say to me but what does this mean (laughs) so we have now we've now explained a favorite word for marvelous it is yes I'm well chuffed (laughs) Okay, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to start the way I always start with when I speak to writers, um, and that is, how did you get started? Well, there are, I suppose, two ways of getting started. The, the, how, you, how you actually began doing serious writing and taking mm-hmm. it seriously, and then there's what led to that beforehand, I think. Um, because f- for me, I was always a, a creative, quiet sort of child, very shy, mm-hmm. but I could fall into a book and I would reread books again and again because I, I loved the journey. I loved the journey through words. It was it was very powerful to me, the kind of the kind of world that I could just fall into through a book. And um, I took great pleasure in writing. And I was told at school that I was quite good at writing. But uh, like many of the people who've come on your podcast, I... I was told, yes, you've got to think of a proper job to do. You you might sort of do writing <laughs> for other people in a job. And I, I, I thought, yes, but all the, the things that people kind of get offered or consider as jobs, nothing really appealed to me. And I, I right. went along with, with everything and, and thought, well, I must be sensible. I must, um, I must try to um, discover what a grown-up life would be uh, doing proper <laughs> jobs. Uh, but Actually, what I really, really wanted was to be a creator. And um, so fast forward a bit, I I went to college, I I did a degree. The the degree was English, which was about as close as I could get to writing. Um, (laughs) And then I ended up doing a a casual job in a publishing company. And uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, making books, I, I do really like that. I'm always kind of, I think I... I considered things that I, I should do. Like somebody said, well, why don't you try to get a marketing job? I thought, marketing? Well, that, that mm-hmm. sounds like something that arty people might do. And right. I could not take to anything about it at all. Like I just kind of, my mind was actually looking after me, the kind of deep down subconscious bit of me saying, no, close that door, that will not suit you. And um, so I did a few kind of odd jobs, like um, like most writers seem to. I, I, was, I was a cleaner, disastrously. I, was, uh, I worked in a... a shop disastrously um and then i managed to find this casual job in a publishing company and i thought now this is what i should be doing and the little subconscious me that actually knew what it wanted said this is what you should do try this with all your might and and so i did and i learned all the publishing trades there and um meanwhile i was I was thinking, well, how will I do something artistic for me? Because what I really hoped would happen was that I'd get a job in a publisher of fiction, really, really good fiction, the kind that I that I really enjoyed, and that I would somehow fall into the right place to have a book of mine published. Right. And <laughs> then I met a writer and ended up marrying him. But he had a lot of friends, I still married him, by the way, and a lot of friends who were writers and they all had books on the go. It was just a completely natural thing. And I thought, this is my place. This is what I should be doing. I should start writing things that I eventually, that I intend to take seriously. Okay. And so um, I I started writing short stories because they seemed to be manageable. And um, I sent them off to agents and agents sent me back saying, you're 
you write very well. You you have quite a peculiar take on things. <laughs> but, um, you know, we'd like to see a novel from you. So I, I started a novel and I, I sent out a, a, an early version. And it, it, I'm really glad they didn't take it, but they were very nice about it. Mm. And meanwhile, I was just in the right kind of world to to make me think it's not a waste of time to take it seriously. Right. So that that was the kind of inner me, the artist me that was struggling to find its way, struggling to find the right thing. And then on the outside, um, my husband was doing a lot of writing for um, various publishers, contract writing, ghost writing kinds of things. So a publisher would say, we want a series on this. In, in this particular case, there were 12 writers all writing team um, paranormal books. Okay. And um, he wrote one of them. And the publisher then realised that when they got them in, they wouldn't work as a series because they were all written by completely different people with completely different takes. So they asked him to rewrite it. And he didn't have time because he was going off to do another job. But he said to me, you can write this. You know exactly what you're doing. So I just wrote another novel from scratch. And six weeks later, delivered it. And the publisher said, oh, you've saved our bacon. Thank you. And they didn't know it was me. They thought it was him. And at that point, it was me. And that was my first published book. And I'll put it down here, actually. So you you ghostwrited a ghostwriter. That's my first ever book. Horoscopes. Okay. (laughs) Don't read it. It's awful. (laughs) (laughs) First one's always (laughs) hard. It had all the cliches, but it was exactly what they needed for the for the readership. I just studied you. You had this by this page, this by this page, this kind of climax. This is what right. you have to keep the stakes going. And I learned such a lot from from that and from working with editors. And then I, I became someone that editors knew they could rely on to write um, a book to a um, a brief. So I started ghostwriting. So I was getting okay. books published under other people's names. And then... When I tried to get my own work published, because um, I wrote for some really big names, um, I would introduce myself to agents and editors saying, well, I've written for this person. And they go, oh, my God, we've got to have you. And then when I presented them what I, with what I really wrote that was really me, they said, oh, can't you just write more um, like the stuff that sells really really well right. and um they just didn't want to know what i did as me okay. so it took me another few years to get a i i did get an agent for my own work on my own terms um okay. but um again um, she had to introduce me as a person who had written as such and such and that just spoiled my chances of getting of getting taken seriously as as mm. myself so I was kind of typecast, but I had learned a huge amount about different kinds of fiction, how fiction works, um, okay. and and also what I should be. And and now I have um, three novels under my own name. I've I've also got a, a set of writing books which were written from my experiences um, coaching people yes. because I I did quite a lot of that too. Once I I understood how fiction worked, I was mm. just eager to to tell other people how they could do what they wanted to do because I could see so much in people's work that would nearly work but needed a bit of changing. So I ended up writing um, a set of books called Nail Your Novel from that. Yes. And I also have a, a travel memoir. So that that is kind of me. <laughs> and it will now end. <laughs> so your first – okay, so let's, let's just back up a little bit. So when we talk about ghostwriting and you said they sold really well – Let's, let's, you know, toot your horn, over 4 million copies. Yes. So I I couldn't believe it. In fact, the publisher never told me. And um, I happened to look it up one day. I I found a way of looking it up because somebody in publishing said, oh, you can look look it up on this kind of thing, this database. And I thought, it sold what? (laughs) (laughs) And what what did that do psychologically to you? Well, um, I wasn't resentful for not getting the credit mm-hmm. because I always knew what the deal was. But I, I suddenly thought, I know what I'm doing, don't I? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so it, it was that really. I, um, I, I remember one one time when I was um, ghostwriting, I, I went to meet the publisher, and the 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 guy I was ghostwriting as was also there, and he was talking to the sales team, and he was standing at the front okay. of the room. 
right. talking about the book I'd written. I got it on my hard drive. <laughs> and they were all looking at him and I would right. back. So you kind of, um, you just get used to the fact that it's you, you're doing a job and you're handing it over. Yeah. Um, but when I started to write my it, own fiction properly, and I, mm. when I knew what I was at that point, I thought, right, this is this is going to be me. This is going to be really me. When I started to uh, do my own fiction as me, I mm. I by then developed a very strong sense of who I was because I knew who right. I wasn't. And so that that's what it what it really did. It 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 made me think. I I have the tools. I I, I know what I'm doing. I know how to tell the kind of stories that that I want to tell now, yeah. and that's what I'm going to do. I mean, you you have you know you said you have an unusual take on things. I mean, I think your stuff is gloriously unique. Um, so I read your you know your first novel, My Memories of a Future Life which really made me sit up and, and take notice of you as an author, because my first introduction to you was through Joanna Penn's, um, and that's pen with a double N, uh, <laughs> Joanna Penn's uh, creative pen um, uh, interview with you. And then I immediately, when Life Form 3, your second novel came out, I immediately picked that up and that was just so moving. Um, and obviously I've, I've snatched up um Everest your your latest novel unfortunately I haven't been able to um to read it um I've got three other novels on the go at the moment but I did read your first chapter and I will say you you know how to start a a novel with a bang I mean that's that's a really kind of just a really the way you write an inciting incident I just just found just really impressive um, and you know you you do write beautifully, and you definitely have have your own voice. Um, how do you? So you're saying you know you were you were able to get an agent, but you really wanted to write on your own terms. What for you? How different is it writing ghostwriting, like the process of, of ghostwriting, compared to writing your own your own fiction? When you go strike, you're part of a team. You're doing right. a job for other people. Um, okay. You usually go strike for a publisher who's got a very clear idea of the audience, who they who they want the book to appeal to, how they're yeah. going to sell it. And that's before yeah. it's even written. Um, when I write for me, I see what emerges. Okay. So I start with an idea with Everest. Um, I had the idea of a man who falls into a glacier and can't be... Um, rescued and, he, okay. and he's dead obviously um, and his body can't be retrieved and it will just come out eventually when the fates decree and meanwhile right. there are people waiting for him and their lives are as frozen as he is in a way mm. because they can't move on and um, I then decided it would be rather good if the whole world was waiting for him because he was a rock musician and right. much loved by many people and part of the formative years of their lives. Uh, so you've got this great sense of waiting and the world yes. holding its breath. Yeah. And I just thought that's what I will explore, this sense of waiting. And also the idea of a, a piece of you frozen in time. And the guy is frozen in the ice. And also he's a musician. And music freezes time for us. We all yes. have a piece of music that tells us who we are and yes. who we were at a certain time and a, a decision we made. And it brings it all back. It, it brings yeah. it back fresh and young, even though we've got older. And all that kind of emerged from the idea. And I thought, that is what I'll write. It, 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 it's beautiful. and it, it, I find it interesting because I've just read um, a manuscript uh, where somebody's quoting somebody else's lyrics. Now, I don't know if you do that in this book because I haven't don't, got that far, but I did notice in the that. back you've got your own disco- uh, discography for the yeah. uh, for the band, the Ashbirds. Um, I, re- I think it's a really lovely piece of well-building to, to be able to do that. Um, I did read that um, when you were at university, you learned a little bit more about rock music than you did your, um, your academic uh, studies. So... Um, <laughs> How much of an influence, you know, you were saying you wanted someone that that, that the whole world would miss and you've used that kind of um, 
motif of, of kind of being frozen. Um, when So when you start writing, you said like, you know, you're kind of exploring and, and, and putting th- things in and out. Do you have any structure or do you literally say, okay, this is the premise and now I'm going to start writing? Do you kind of feel your way through it? I have to create a structure or okay. I will just get lost in words and expressing myself. Yes. So um, the next thing I did after realising what was in the idea for me mm-hmm. was I, I started creating characters, things that they would do, um, people who would be most um, strongly affected and distressed. Right. By this situation, the kinds of turmoils they'd go through, I, I made those, and then I thought of the kinds of things that they would do, and and I built the novel from that. So I, I made an outline, okay, and and then I wrote the outline, and then I found as I was halfway through writing the first draft, they had a lovely rebellion, and I thought, of course, this is now they their hearts have come alive. They, right. They know what they'll do and what they won't do. And yeah. and then I went with that. And I, I did adjust my outline so that I wasn't feeling my way through a dark alleyway. Right. Uh, but I do write to outlines. Yes, I, I did start a novel because I got the idea. I got the, a powerful um, setting and things that people were doing that, were, uh, that was a bit strange. And uh, I just started and I, I was making things up and right. um, I didn't really know where I was going with it. And I, I just kind of en- enjoyed writing for about 60,000 words before I thought, really, I need mm. to pull this apart and look yeah. at it properly. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I realised I can't just make it all up in, in a flow from beginning to end. I, yes. I need a lot of structure. And um, I do a lot of editing. Um Everest, I went through uh, about 23 times. Good grief. Okay. I went through the manuscript 23 times. And um, sometimes I was adjusting just a, a sort of small aspect of the theme to make right. sure that it worked with everything else. Sometimes I was um, adjusting a character's dialogue because there's something about it that, that I thought I could do a bit better. Um, I, I do edit, and I love the editing process. I find it very, very... Um, creative. I okay. think if I if I was a musician, I'd be the kind who loved the studio, right? Because I would I would lay tracks down and and then I would adjust them and mix them, add a little bit and pull a little bit back and do a little overdub and all that kind of thing. And that's very much the way I write. Okay, I mean, I, I certainly find your work, you know, beautifully, beautifully layered. How do you um, approach self editing? Because it is a very different skill set. So, but, and I've seen editors, you know, people self-editing go through it. Okay, this this read, I'm going to go through it with this perspective. I'm going to look at character. You know, this this one, I'm going to go through. This edit, I'm going to look at, you know, location or description. Um, for you, self-editing, how do you, I guess, psychologically make that, that switch? Um, I, I agree that... A- a good approach is to set certain tasks for for each read through. You, you can't do everything at once. There's a yeah. lot that needs to work. But yeah. um, I approach it very much a, a state of um, having having material and then examining it to see if I can make something much better okay. out of just the the kind of the rushes it's like rushes in a movie to use right. another example an art form of another example um and so i i put it away for a bit then i come back to it and then i i do a thing that i call a beat sheet um lots okay. of people use the term beat sheets they usually use them for making outlines but right. um i i actually developed this when i was ghostwriting because i needed to check the arcs very quickly i needed to check characters didn't disappear yeah. i needed to to check that crescendo is built where they were supposed to so i developed quite a complicated version with emoticons and things so i could see all kinds of stuff at a glance about how right. it's working so i do an analysis like that okay. and um i actually cover this in in my nail or novel books explaining exactly how to do it and um from that i make a blueprint of what the book is then I consider how I can change things. So I'm very analytical and I really enjoy that. I I have learned not to get too attached 
to certain parts that I've written okay. because they might not serve the whole book. And that, that's a mindset mm. that you have to have. You, you, yeah. you might think you've put a sequence in because it's, it, it happened to you. Usually right. there are very there are very sentimental reasons for, for some parts of a book that you like, but you at some point have to ask yourself, does this serve the purpose of this book? Because your, your duty to, is to get that book right. right. So I approach it from that quite uh, ruthless point of view of getting okay. this book right and just work at it like that. And um, it, it is quite hard. Sometimes you find you've um, painted yourself into a corner and you, you've got to solve things. But if you just keep on and on and on, it eventually works. So that, that's how I edit. <laughs> and then do you, do you ever engage the services of, a, of another editor? Because I've seen, you know, your acknowledgements, you know, you, you're, um, you know, thanking a good half a dozen beta readers. Yeah, what I do is um, I've got various people who will tell me overall whether things work and I can discuss with them what might be better. Um, And Dave, my husband, is is always my first reader and he gives me essentially the developmental kind of feedback, which is don't have that there that arc isn't really working and I do the same for his work too so we we kind of because we 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 speak writer okay and um, (laughs) so so we we do that kind of work ourselves and then what I do is I try it on other people who will say oh Roz that's not your best (laughs) (laughs) because they know my work and they know what I can do and they're not afraid to say if if something doesn't work and I've done the same for them and I also, for Everest, I needed some experts, um, a mountaineering expert, for instance. Um, they, they do actually climb Everest. And, okay. <laughs> um, and I have not. <laughs> so, um, I, I have done about 20 years of reading about this because I do love the subject. I love the Everest literature and the other um, high altitude mountains as well. I've done a okay. lot of reading about it all. But there's no substitute for someone who will then look at the manuscript and say, they couldn't do that, or that's not possible. And um, I had a a beta reader who came back with um, quite a a few comments like that. And he was also able to then suggest things that might work. And then not all of those were suitable. But what I then did was think, all right, um, how will I make this work in story terms? So so those are the the kinds of people I, I needed feedback from. It's interesting. So, you, you know, you, you spoke about um, having felt part of a team when you were um, ghostwriting. And now it feels like you've kind of formed your own your own team. I mean, obviously, they might not be quite as business focused. Obviously, they're more craft focused. Um, what did you learn from being um, edited as a ghostwriter? huge amounts of things um things like internal consistency i'm incredibly careful to be consistent about every detail and that's because when the first time i got a manuscript from a copy editor that said can they do that in the time they've got or um how big is such and such or is there such a place in mumbai um that taught me just get everything right. Check absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. So I, I became very, very disciplined from that. that. That was one thing that I learned. And I also also learned that it, you, you can't sort of just fudge some details to, to get something past a, an editor. They, they will say, well, I don't believe that. So okay. I don't believe the character would do that. So I ended up after several books with my own um, ghost writing editor in my head asking me questions i'd say would would they allow me to get away with this and nope i better go and um look it up properly check it properly um be able to provide sources if necessary so that i can check them again several um elements in everest i I, whenever i came to them i would think check that one more time because it had better be right." right so i became incredibly careful and and also i I thought if I I learned to detect if I was trying to pull a fast one on the reader or be a bit unfair to the reader because I was thinking 
that editor I worked with would have picked that up. She wouldn't let me get away with it. And so I had better just solve it. So it it left me with, it was a really, really good training ground. It it left me with an internal editor that um, was um, very harsh, but incredibly good for me. Yeah. I I really like that, that kind of comparison, I guess, that, you know, your characters stay with you as you're writing a novel. Um, Sometimes Mm -hmm. they haunt you before and sometimes they haunt you afterwards. But um, I, I like that thought of having that editorial voice in, in your head as well. When I, I got somebody to read my last novel <clears throat> and she came back with 1,690 comments. And I remember opening, <laughs> I remember opening the document and my heart just sinking. But now when I write, I can hear her voice. Yes. Yes. It, it, it's absolutely astonishing. Um, okay. So there are times when writing a novel feels like climbing a mountain how do you um, push through sort of difficult times, you know, when you're not feeling it, when you get up in the morning or you feel like you've written yourself into a, into a corner? How do you, how do you keep going? Well, the combination of things, I'm very, very persistent, very patient. Um, I, uh, for years I've ridden horses and, um, I've got a horse I'm I'm training and for that you have to have unbelievable patience and uh, you just have to take everything very slowly and I think that's that's something I've either learned from my writing or I've learned from schooling my horse that you have good days and you have bad days but you just keep on and um, you don't keep on blindly doing the same thing that isn't working you look for new things that will work, okay. but you have this goal and you know that if you looked back a few months or a year, you've actually moved on quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. And um, sometimes these books take a long time. So uh, you might look back o- over a year and think, oh, actually, I've done a lot with this and it's in much better shape. Yeah. We might look back over a few weeks and think, well, I thought that problem was insurmountable. But actually, I found a way through, and I'm so pleased I was made to think about that problem because I've got something better. That's what I often find when there's a problem in a book. Is because you know I mentioned at the beginning that my subconscious was kind of looking after me and closing doors and saying, "That is not for you. Do yes. not do that. Do not waste a moment of your life thinking about that." And in a way, that's how my creative muse works as well. It it says there's something else in here. Do more work on it. And the reward is, it is always worth it. It's always worth yeah. it because the, there are countless plot holes that I found myself in with all my novels. And I thought, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I'm fed up now, really fed up. <laughs> but um, you solve them one bit at a time and yeah. you eventually think, oh, yeah, I, I had something with a lot of holes. But now, because I kind of couldn't leave them, I have something much better. Yeah. And something that I do find works is you have to keep a note of your first inspiration Yes. about the book. Uh, the big thing that filled you with glee for the idea, that yeah. made you really want to spend time on it, keep that written down somewhere or keep pictures or pieces of music that will take you back to that place, that will yeah. remind you you know, the thing that you're aiming for, the big thing that you want to make a work out of. You know, that, that, that's really interesting because one of the first things I do <clears throat> as a book coach with my clients is really, really dig into what is it you're writing? What is the point you're trying to make? Um, why are you the best person to, to write it? But more importantly, why? What is it about this story that that's triggering you? Because... You know, whether you're doing National Novel Writing Month or you're, you know, two years through writing a novel, there are, there are those moments where, it, you know, you do lose that that um, that kind of bit of spark. And I always think of writing it almost as like problem solving. I have this story. I need to get it over. You know, how am I going to do it? And, you know, that can become a bit of a slog. Um, so when people say they have, you know, writer's block, and I know not everybody believes in writer's blog uh, yeah I always get them to go back and, and say okay you know have another think about that that sparks and that's ex- you know exactly what what you've been saying 
I, I did want to ask you, um, and I know I keep coming back to ghostwriting, but but I think they kind of inform each other. Um, can you afford to have an off day as a ghostwriter? No, you've got you've usually got screaming deadlines. Right. <laughs> so that that's another thing. You you sit down, you've got to get your words done. Yeah. Or your yeah. research done. So it is like going into an office. You you can't sit there and have an off day. You just do the work. Right. So how do you project manage your own, um, you know, your your own work because you don't have that external deadline coming at you? Well, I probably take much longer over a book, over a novel than some people would, but um, that's mainly because of the kind of novel I'm writing. Okay. Um, the these very layered books take a lot of yes. time they mm. they take much more time than the the average book that's ghost written which which is really a very straightforward narrative yeah. um and you can usually write them in a few months or you might only have a few weeks um the kinds of the kinds of novels i write for me i i want them to really stand the test of time and i want to have put as much richness in as yes. possible so that takes a very long time um and I just, I, I find it helps to measure my progress in some way, um, but sometimes it's not word counts okay. because, um, you, you know, I, I can type forever. I can have thoughts forever that will go on a page and look reasonable, <laughs> but that's not the aim. Um, so what I often do in the early developmental stages is I log the number of hours I've spent okay. on on the book and I, and I write it in my diary and the early stages of of the book I will be um logging hours rather than actual word counts um, okay. and, and that helps me see that I've actually done you know, some serious work on it you know I've never heard anybody say that before it's always <sighs> you know I need to write I need to write 250 words a day or 500 words a day hmm might have a think about that <laughs> <laughs> so do you... well in a first draft you um you aren't writing necessarily what will be used in the end mm. and you must have heard people say that thinking time is as important yes. well, thinking time is, is the work and you're spending hours on that so. yeah yeah and, and you can be <clears throat> you can sort of be writing when you're walking the dog you know you can be thinking yeah thinking you know things through apart from stop dragging me around this park but but um but yeah i mean uh, you know my, my other half often says to me <laughs> you're not listening to me are you because <laughs> i think there's like you know that 10 percent of my brain that is somewhere else mm. you know and if i'm on a train or if we are on a train and i hear a really interesting bit of conversation out comes the phone and my notes app but it you know it goes in and it might spark a scene or just uh you know, just mm. just just some short kind of so, um, interchange. Do you have you or do you uh, ever get imposter syndrome? Oh yes, uh, when a book isn't going well, which is you know ninety percent of the time it's in progress, <laughs> <laughs> because I my job while doing that is to see what doesn't work. And right. seeing what doesn't work all the time is, you know, absolutely feeds imposter syndrome. Mm. And it's it's difficult when you finish something and you eventually manage to wrestle it into a shape that you're pleased with, and people are saying, "Oh, she's she's awfully good at this." You think it's that that's absolutely lovely, but I've now got to do it again. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to. <laughs> and I, you just kind of learn that you did it before and you will not leave it alone until it's finished properly. Yes. So that that's kind of how I deal with it. But it, it is difficult. And I'm really lucky in knowing a lot of writers and you know, having, having one in the next room there. Yes. Who, you know, I, I can say, oh, God, I feel this is rubbish. And um, he says the same to me. So, you know, we're all in the same boat. And that's just part of the work. Yeah, yeah. What is it like being married to, to another writer? We're very lucky in that we aren't jealous of each other. Mm. <laughs> um, I think that can be a problem if um, somebody gets hugely successful in a field. And actually, Dave, Dave is he's um, very famous among certain um, readers of 
fantasy role-playing games and um, fantasy stories. And um, so he's very well known, actually. Okay. Um, and I don't write that kind of thing at all. Um, I do my own thing. But um, but we don't we don't compete with each other. Yeah. We, we kind of we believe very much in doing the art well. And because we both believe that and we and we both also agree on what that is, we both enjoy the same kind of books, mm. the same kind of um, network TV shows, the same kind of films. We've we've both got this this ethic of curiosity and how right. stories work and why they work and how characters work. And we absolutely adore the uh, um, we adore talking about craft and good craft and noticing craft and enjoying good good stories so um from that that is really where where we work from and and right. what we enjoy as people so that's why we we get on well that, that's why it's it's it, it's a good partnership in work terms and also i suppose personal terms um but if you if you're with a writer who doesn't share those sorts of things i, I think if if i was um married to a writer who um loved the kind of genre books that I don't like and were saying, well, just churn out a few of those. <laughs> I, I think we would come to blows quite quickly about yes. our work and we yes. wouldn't be able to share our work. We might share lots of other things, but I can share my work with Dave and he can share his work with me because we, we both have the same artistic values. Mm. And, you know, I, I dated an actor once and I remember um, he said to me, um, I really love it that you're creative and that, and that you write. Um, but I won't like it if you become more famous than me. And I, I, I and needless to say, that relationship didn't last. But uh, but it it really took the wind out of my sails, and I was thinking, oh, you know, do I have to to um, you know rein in what I'm doing just in case things do take off for me? Anyway, he's gone. Um, so. So, you know, when you have this moment of, of, of imposter syndrome, what, what was the moment when you felt confident and to enable you to start writing your nail, nail, nail your novel nail series? Novel. Um, that was actually the, the first book I wrote as me, the first one of those. Um, oh. I was doing a lot of mentoring for Cornerstones Literary Consultants. Okay, I know them. And um, I just found that... I could very easily see what was going wrong with people's manuscripts, what they really wanted, where they needed to do further work on their their own aims for the book, where Mm. they needed to read more in their genre, all that kind of thing, and what worked and what didn't. And I soon had piles of reports that I'd written for people. And um, I really enjoyed that mentoring because it was about doing the art well. And it's about helping someone see what they could do with their potential. Yes. And I loved that. And I started writing a blog called Nail or Novel, and I very soon thought, well, there's a book in this. And um, I just thought, well, what I'll do first of all, the first book was actually just a process book. It was how how to write, how to revise, how to do it all and not get overwhelmed and get to the end and be confident that you've done a good job. Because th- that was one of the major problems that I saw people have. I would say to people, well, you need to move that character. You need to put those two characters together. You need to yeah. rethink the arc of this and, and think of where you're going to have this particular event happen, have a bigger event here. And they would look at me thinking, I've got 75,000 words. How do I do that? <laughs> and I thought, well, it's easy for me. Why is it easy for me and not easy for them? Right. And I thought, well, I'll write a book to tell them how to make it easy. Okay. And that was the first Nail Your Novel book. And, so, and then from that, and I, then I wrote one on plot and one on characters and a workbook. Uh, but it all came from just having a sense of um, just as soon as I started thinking about these problems, I thought I know exactly what to do here. Yeah. And that's actually when imposter syndrome disappears, when you realise you actually do know quite yes. a lot. Yes. So it's interesting. So, you know, some of the manuscripts I, I look at, you know, you, you do start to see patterns emerge and that there are kind of similarities in the not the same mistakes but the opportunities that you know writers have to you know strengthen their craft what what to you what do you think your kind of 
What what are the things that you look for or that you see most apparent in other people's work? I look for what they want to do to the reader. I look for what they want to get the reader interested in and um, what they are most interested in about the characters and situation. Um, Mm. I tend to... I, I don't read a lot of genre books myself, okay. but I know genre is basically about what the reader is interested in. So thrillers, yeah. they want they want thrills in a particular way. They're usually very well versed in them. They've seen lots of plots. They've seen all the most thrilling situations. They want a new version of that. And um, so I, I look, when I'm considering, when, when I'm discussing with a client whether I'll suit them, I ask them what they want to do to the reader. If they're more kind of... Uh, if they if they are very genre um, focused, then I tend to think, well, you'd be better with a different editor who is very focused on what's going on in the genre now and so on. Right. But if they are more um, well literary or more interested in in just all of humanity as a whole, then I think that I'll probably work quite well with them. And at that point, I look for what the the manuscript is telling me about about what what they want to explore about humanity and then mm. how how it's working in those terms in it and and that's that's how i the, the lens through which i assess a whole book so the characters and the the plot and the, the way everything is presented the kinds mm. of things that happen um so so that's what jumps out at me i'm always looking for what what the author's heart is in how did you yeah yeah and i and again i think that comes back to what we're talking about you know about understanding that this is a point they're trying to make and Mm. why they are writing this and if they bring all of that back to does this scene serve that that point or that that intention i have for for a novel Mm. good i should think about that when I'm editing my own stuff as well as doing developmental (laughs) edits for other people. (laughs) Also, well, people actually, the kind of answer people often want to that question is, uh, what are the mistakes that people generally make? Mm. Are they putting in too much backstory too soon? Are they showing, are they telling when they should show? Um, Is their dialogue authentic? Uh, All that sort of thing. Um, Yes, people make all those sorts of mistakes, but um, I I find that that, the, the most helpful thing to do is to clarify what, what the real purpose of mm. of the book is, and from there you can decide if there if they should show more than tell. Oh, sometimes mm. telling is good as well. So True. it's it's difficult to to be prescriptive about these are the the common beginner mistakes because the, yes. the common beginner mistakes are not the whole thing. Uh, you you run some Guardian masterclasses, don't you? Um, mm. How do you find sort of getting up and speaking to people? Because, you know, writing is very, um, well, can be a very insular, you know, kind of work. Um, what what gives you that, that confidence to be able to get up and, and talk in front of a room of people? I, I got kind of thrown in at the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I couldn't do it. Um, it was Joanna Penn who made me. Ah, okay. <laughs> yes. Oh, she was giving a, a masterclass in self-publishing, and okay. um, they wanted uh, several presenters to to do the various aspects of self-publishing. And this was um, in front of two hundred people in the Guardian. Right. <laughs> and she asked me to do the the module on um, making print books because I'd done that in my job in the publishers. I knew right. all the how to make print books, and yeah, I just put together my slides and um, went along not really knowing what what would happen and got put in front of the audience and I just started and I thought I could talk for ages about this I know exactly what I'm talking about I enjoy presenting it they look like they're having a good time they're asking good. questions we're, we're all learning and yeah. that was it if you have the big um, if, if you have a lot of knowledge that you want to impart that you're mm. enthusiastic about imparting yeah. then it's not that difficult you, you are talking to people who want to learn that's yes. the great thing with teaching something like that they they are there because they they want you 
to tell them how to do something that they really want to do. And yes. that's what you're doing, you're having a conversation. And you, you're you a writing coach as well. You're a woman of many talents. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of qualities do you think a coach needs as opposed to a teacher? What's the difference? Um, I, I tend to use the two things interchangeably, okay. although you could say that a teacher tends to stand in front of a class and a coach is mm. probably giving one-to-one -one, um, right. feedback. So um, a coach is more able to be, I'm using, actually notice I'm using the term and in, 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 using it in terms of opportunities. You've got the yes. opportunity yes. to have a more meaningful exchange with someone and help them do what they personally want for, for their book and to help them re achieve their personal potential so that's probably the difference yeah i mean i remember well um jenny nash um who's a who's a book coach she always says you know at the end of the day the author is the god of their own story mm. and I, I think you know <clears throat> i think we're, you know when we are coaching somebody we need to kind of vet them before we start to kind of try and get a feeling of you know are they going to take feedback are they going to be able to think critically about their own work and also they kind of open to coaching because I feel like sometimes people just want their stuff marked and they don't necessarily want to be not challenged, but, you know, led through a series of questions to really kind of reflect, reflect on their work. Have you ever had any kind of nightmare stories with somebody you've been, you've been coaching or tried to coach? I, I do recognize what you're saying. I recognize it very well. Um, I've, I've had consultations with, with people who uh, just actually wanted to tell me bits from their book. And right. um, I'm thinking, well, you wanted to discuss what to do with it. But if, yes. if you just tell me bits from your book, that's wasting your time. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and I, I've also had, had – people can get very defensive. Yes. And I've I've learned – from being on the receiving end, how it feels sometimes to have someone mm. hammering away with criticism. Yes. That is hard. So um, what I do is I I also I, I make sure that I, I make people understand what we're trying to do is take your strengths mm. and make them better. Yes. And that's that's the aim we have. That that's why you want me to help you, and and that's why you know, I want to help you because I can see there are things you can do better. Usually, that gets around most of the problems. Well, I did have one one guy who um, I did a developmental report for, and I think he was hoping I would praise him for it being brilliant from start yes. to finish. But uh, it had a lot of problems and strengths. You know, you. Never forget, someone gives you a manuscript of 80,000 words. They've done a huge amount of work and problem Absolutely. solving all by themselves yeah. before they even give it to you. And I always acknowledge that. And, and that's, that's not saccharine praise. That's mm. genuine appreciation mm. of a lot of work. And I, so I sent him my, uh, my report. And usually I get replies from people saying, oh, ooh, this is quite a lot to take in, but thank yeah. you. And oh, that's that's really helpful. I never thought of that. So they want to discuss it a little bit. This guy never replied at all. Oh. So I think I think his nose is severely out of joint. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is yes. Receptivity is important, but um, I hope um, I make it clear in our initial emails. And you talked mm. about vetting people. This I I check that they're going to get on with the kind of feedback I'll give them and that that's the kind of feedback they want. Sometimes mm. they don't, they don't want someone like me. That's not going to suit what they need. Mm. Sometimes they do need someone like me. Um, and I try to establish that so that, so that we all get a good experience. Yeah. Because, you know, neither us as, as coaches or, or the writer, you know, wants to have, you know, chances are they're spending a lot of money, you know, for us to, to go mm. through a manuscript and, you know, they want bank for their buck. And, if someone's willing to pay, you know, upwards of a thousand pounds just to be told, yes, your book's great, I, I find that a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, I don't even know the word to use. Um, I'm just kind of shocked that somebody would be prepared to part with that much money and be sort of taken aback mm. when they get something, when they get something for their money. Yes, so, ha yes. Yeah. The report I give them is is like a um, a detailed tutorial in their own writing as well as the, right. as well as the individual book. It's in 
writing techniques they can use yes. for other books too. So it's yeah. it um, has more value than just that book. Yeah. Sorry, you were going to say. No, no, no. I mean, so there are writers out there with your voice in their head as well as all their characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now you have dabbled your um, you have dabbled in video game writing. How yes. how did that all come about? Um, I knew someone, uh, mainly through Dave actually, who okay. needed some dialogue and story written for a Lara Croft game. And um, so I, I went along to meet them. I, I wore good laced up boots to try and look the part. <laughs> and, That's fantastic. And they liked me. And, and that, that was good. And I, it was just excellent fun to, yeah. to put on that guise for a while, put on that, that voice and outlook and um just have fun so yeah and was that process how different was that say from ghostwriting where again you're probably writing with a with a team it was writing with a team so they told me what they needed they told me how long the pieces they needed had to be because they had to come up in the game so um, i wrote pieces of dialogue um they i wrote little pieces of story Mm -hmm. They, they needed certain plot aspects established so they gave me those and I made them into a scene that would be interesting you know would take a certain number of um, seconds on the screen um, and there's a lot of mind changing that happens a lot with with writing jobs okay. people say oh we we now think we don't need those or we need them half as long or we need them twice as long so you you will end up redoing stuff that you were quite pleased with and thought worked quite well and then you yes. just junk it and do it again <laughs> in a different way and that's just part of part of the work really yeah yeah and so out of all of the things that you do um what do you find the most fulfilling it's got to be my novels and yeah. also I, I did a travel memoir i uh, i started off doing that as, as just a bit of an amusement and mm. that turned into something that i i really enjoyed oh, it's up there actually <laughs> oh yes and it's yeah so i love the real what i call the real writing uh, writing for my own soul um mm. so exploring just what i find powerful about a situation um, and making the reader feel it and taking the reader on a journey mm. and crafting it and honing it so that it, it works as richly as possible. That's that's what I find really fulfilling. Right. So let, let's go, just dial back a little bit and talk about so your three novels in, in isolation. So My Memories of a Future Life, um, if you want to give us like, you know, the book jacket, copy of that and then marvelous I love that new cover it's so so beautiful mm-hmm. yeah how did you so what what was it about that that kind of spoke to you and that you wanted to explore I was always fascinated by stories of people going to other lives through hypnosis right. they had these things buried deep in them or they came up with them on the spur of the moment who knows okay. But I thought, um, what if you didn't go into the past? What if you went into the future? And it was something you had yet to live. Someone was feeling the tug of you in your own time. Uh, Okay. And from that, I thought, who would go into a future life? Who would seek that? What kind of problems might they be having now? And I thought it, it would be somebody who... Had was in such a state of despair, she'd lost all hope for her own life. Mm. And um, I again turned to music. Music is very important to me. Yes. And I thought of a, a musician, a classical musician, a classical pianist who gets mysterious pains and has to stop playing. And she can't, um, she can't do anything. She, she's literally lived through the expression she can give to herself through playing the piano. And um, I thought she will be the person who will be so desperate for a cure that she will eventually go to a hypnotist. And um, she doesn't go to a past life. She, she actually wants to see that things turned out okay in her own. But instead, she goes way off the end and into something else. And it's got strange parallels with what she's doing now. Meanwhile, in her real life, she's having to find a way to 
live by not doing the thing that kept her alive, really. And then she has to unpick layers of why she felt like that about the piano. Um, She ends up teaching and teaching people who are cloth-eared, tin-eared, and it absolutely (laughs) kills her even more. And uh, she develops a strange kind of relationship with the hypnotist because of the, the possible hope he shows her or doesn't. And I just wanted to explore all that, and and that 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 turned into my memories of a future life. And that was obviously your first novel, and the first novel I, I'd read of yours. I'd seen your interview with with Joanna Penn, mm. and um, was like, okay, I'm definitely give it, definitely going to give this a look. And it is very um, thought provoking, and um, I guess technically it's speculative fiction. It can be. Or it yeah, could be yeah. suspense, or it depends which which way round you want to see. You could see it from either yes. either end, and there were so many questions that I wanted to explore about mm. about how we influence each other, um, yeah. how we build who we are, and what memories do, and and music again. I thought that there was a, a little parallel. There's only small compared with the bigger questions, but uh, when I was doing my research on classical musicians, I realised that they they're not like rock musicians rock musicians tend to just play what blurts out of their soul classical musicians are obeying a score they're incredibly obedient to it Mm. these are notes that were written down by someone maybe hundreds of years ago and they also have emotion notes so they they will have notes saying play this lovingly so you actually kind of channel the heart and soul of the composer while you are playing and I thought that is like channeling another self so it all kind of came together in in, in a way in lots of pleasing ways pleasing ways for me anyway yeah, yeah. it is it is a beautiful book um having said that I preferred Life Form 3 only because it speaks to to some things that I am particularly again gorgeous cover Thank you. <laughs> it, it um yeah, it spoke to some things that I was I was particularly interested in, and now I know why there was horses. <laughs> yes. So yeah, um, tell us a bit, little bit more about about Life Form Three and what brought you to to write that that particular piece of work. Well, Life Form Three is set at an unspecified time in the future. That is speculative fiction, mm. and um, it's about the last piece of countryside in a land, mm. maybe England, maybe another country, and. People go there to look at fields because everything's been built over. You look at fields and valleys and woods and streams and um, the remains of an old house that was there, probably somewhere like Downton Abbey. I'm imagining a, an estate like Downton Abbey, which was like, they were like kingdoms of their own. I've always loved those places. And I, I thought one day, what will this be like? How long will this last? And we are so lucky to be able to walk around and look at it and, and, yeah, yeah. and travel in our imaginations to these times. And um, that made me think of, of setting something in the future where there was only one of these left. And I thought, well, I started to think of people who might work in such a place. And the narrator of Life Form 3 is um, an artificial human. Uh, so it's channeling on top of Blade Runner. Um, and his mind is wiped every now and again to make him more productive, just yes. to sort of keep him, keep him on on track, keep him on message, um, make him give adverts to people, and um, he can't develop independent thought. But the night after, the first night after he has his mind wiped, he dreams. No one yes. else dreams. He yeah. dreams, and he dreams he's riding a horse. And that starts this quest that he can't ignore. He's got to find why he dreamed he was riding a horse. Mm. And um, they have a few animals in the park, and it's called Harkaway Hall. Okay. And they they have a few animals there, but they're all wild, and they're, they're things like sheep and cows, and there are some horses as well. And no one can go near them because they're all just completely wild. They've never been domesticated. Right. But he gets an absolute compulsion to try and get closer to the horses and to discover why he has these dreams. Mm-hmm. It was it was just so beautifully observed, and and you know I, I read it on the I was reading it on the train, and and to be physically transported is one thing, 
but to be emotionally transported it is quite another and I did miss my stop on more than one occasion um but yeah and and I don't often reread books but I reread Life Form 3 um thank you it was just it was just just lovely so what what brought you to Everest obviously so you have the idea about um somebody going missing and being missed but but and I know you brought your kind of rock um, enthusiasm to that. What what sort of brought you into actually starting it? I wrote a short story first, um, okay. many, many years ago, uh, just about a, a guy in the ice and people waiting for him. And um, I, I didn't really do the idea justice. I actually read it out in a writing critique group I was going to at the time. And they said, there's a novel in this. And right. I showed it to um, some friends in publishing and they said, oh, we need a novel out of this. And I never really knew what to do with it until I, I finished Life Form 3 and I, I got it out. And um, people, there were other people I'd showed the short story to who said, God, I always remembered that. That was so haunting. Mm. And I thought, people are telling me to do more with this. What can I do with it? And um, I started... The, examining um what deeper stories it was telling me what what it was telling me and mm. I, I decided it was about um deep buried friendships a time of life that was in, incredibly special to people who who you knew then who you are still bonded to somehow because they they changed your life in various ways they um, they pushed you in certain directions because of what you did together. So, so that was what I started exploring. And mm. then I hadn't thought of adding music until quite late, but I, I suddenly realised that music went with it very mm. well. And that's when I thought, ah, oh, making a, a rock musician. And then it suddenly went into cinema scope. Okay. I had I had the big landscape that I wanted I didn't just want to write a story about people climbing I've mm. read lots of those but I thought I felt there was a lot more in it and that um when I when I realized I could add music to it as well I realized I found the personal dimension for for making it about who we are when we're younger how music tells us who we are how it keeps that in a really special time mm. and um and also the nature of grief um how mm. Um, in this story, um, you've got people who can sort of reconjure the guy who's disappeared just by watching his videos, by playing his music, by watching mm. his concert footage. Um, and then you've got the people who really knew him, who are waiting for him to come back and whose loss is, is a, a completely different level. And they are just bombarded by this all the time. They can never move on. And I thought that's actually like grief anyway that's like mm. loss anyway mm. it's not something you can ever get to the end of it's it is there all the time you just have to learn to live with it so mm. i was very interested in exploring those aspects of um, of humanity really i i um i love ideas that seem to have a big metaphysical or metaphorical element mm. as well as being strong stories that that's what i really look for when i've Usually an idea comes to me as a, a powerful metaphor and I have to explore what that is. And mm. then I have to excavate and find what big story I will tell to get the reader in there too, the kind yeah. of experiencing all those ironies and cruelties and joys. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what would you – I often notice that, that when a writer – you know, has has a body of work. Now you've gone through those. You've obviously you have three in counting. I hope you are counting. So I'm looking forward to four. Um, what what would you say the kind of themes or motifs are across all kind of three? I'm very interested in something that scholars of D. H. Lawrence call aliveness. Okay. It is actually a word. <laughs> um, it's what what sort of passions are inside us and impulses that we don't understand mm. and all the all the characters in all my novels are kind of looking for a bigger life the thing that makes them feel truly who they are yes. truly fulfilled truly 
truly big and capable and fills their souls. They are all looking for that, for what fills their souls. And um, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and I, I realized it came from something that my father said to me when I was quite small. He okay. said, um, he, he quoted the uh, Henry David Thoreau um, line that said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. And I found that terrifying. <laughs> and I realized it, I only realized this last week, but I realized it has given me my manifesto of what I write about. Right. It is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I, I was thinking, okay, this is, this was his work is about, is about memory. It's about, you know, obviously That's, memories of yes. future life, literally. And then in life form three, the kind of, that kind of haunting memory that uh, that a dream can give you, <clears throat> and now memories of someone who's missing. But yeah, I think you've tapped into something much bigger than that. Um, so when I when I read Everest, I'm going to keep that keep that in mind. So, Roz, I was well chuffed to talk to you back in 2015. I'm even more chuffed to have had the time with you again here in 2021. And it's really interesting to see how far we've we've both you know our careers have both both moved on. So thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. That's been such a good chat. I really enjoyed it. Good. Good.